Hi, friend. Thank you so much for downloading this podcast. And it is my sincere hope you'll hear something that will encourage, edify, equip, and then get you out into the marketplace of ideas. But before you listen, I'm going to tell you about this month's Truth Tool. My Truth Tool is offered to anyone who gives a financial gift to In the Market with Janet Parshall. And this month, I've chosen the book, Connecting the Dots, What God is Doing When Life Doesn't Make Sense. Ever been there? Of course you have. We all have been. Sometimes we think we're walking in circles, and we're wondering whether or not God has left us, we've walked away from Him, what in the world we're doing if we're even in the center of His will. So this book is designed to help you find peace and confidence in your current challenge. And all of us have challenges. It also will make sense of most of the lessons you're learning right now. And the most important part of this and why I felt this would be appropriate is because it will help clarify in your mind the unique mission and message that God has given to you. So the book is called Connecting the Dots. It's yours for a gift of any amount. And all you have to do is call 877-JANET-58. That's 877-JANET-58. And give a gift of any amount, and we'll send you a copy of Connecting the Dots. If you prefer to do it online, that's easy as well. In the market with JanetParshall.org. Scroll to the bottom of the page. There's the cover of the book. Click on through, make your gift, and again, we'll send you a copy of Connecting the Dots. Just below the picture of the book is a description of what it means to be a partial partner. Those are people who give every month a gift of their own choosing. They set the level of giving. I don't. But they'll always get the truth tool. And in addition to that, a weekly newsletter that goes out as well. So consider being a partial partner or getting a copy of Connecting the Dots by calling 877-JANET-58 or online at inthemarketwithjanetpartial.org. Now please enjoy the program. Here are some of the news headlines we're watching. By the time the conference was over, the president won a pledge. So Americans worshiping government over God. An extremely next... rare safety move by a nation. 17 years of Palestinians and Israelis negotiating. This idea of Horshacks is not Friends, welcome to In the Market with Janet Partial. Happy Wednesday to you. Thank you so much for joining us. We're going to have some great conversation this hour. So I am very glad that you are with us. But we're going to continue because it is continuing in Israel. Day 128. Israelis woke up to sad news today that uh, dozens of the hostages have died and they will not be coming home to their loved ones. But I'm going to turn back again to my friends at CBN News, this time a report from Julie Stahl that talks about why anti-Semitism is skyrocketing. Have a listen. Statistics show that anti-Semitism is as high as it's been since the beginning of the Nazi movement. It's a major threat for Jewish communities. Uh, We see that uh, Jews are afraid to wear the yarmulke or the Magen David and to go out on the street. We have the case of Paul Kessler, a professor who quietly raised an Israeli flag in the streets of L.A. and was brutally murdered by a pro-Palestinian protesters. Israeli government minister Amichai Chikli handles issues relating to Jews worldwide. He recently shared a report on this dramatic rise and focused on key incidents of 2023, mainly the murder of Jews and Israelis in the U.S., Tunisia and Egypt, and U.S. university presidents arguing that calls for genocide of the Jews did not violate their code of conduct. Chickley tells CBN News much of this can be traced to universities receiving funding from foreign states like Qatar and organizations promoting terror and jihad. 
I think we need to examine what's happening in CARE and other Muslim Brotherhood-related organizations that possess a threat not just for Jews, but also for any other civilian, and especially for the ideology and the values of uh, the Judeo-Christian civilization. He also echoed cause for alarm within the Palestinian Authority. Mahmoud Abbas, who says that uh, Hitler uh, exterminated the Jews not because of their religion, but because of the social role and financial business. This is uh, basically Hamash, almost medieval uh, blood labels. The focus of growth, however, comes back to the United States, which recorded some 45 percent of worldwide anti-Semitic incidents since October 7th. So today the U.S. became the center of anti-Semitism. In terms of the cases that we are facing, we know that this is also the largest Jewish community outside of Israel. The greatest weapon, though, is social media, which reaches across borders. We've seen an increase of 1,200 anti-Semitic content that calls for violence against Jews. These are not just posts against Jews. These are posts with a specific intent to commit a violent assault. Chickley says Israel is changing its strategy from defense to offense, including countersuits against Hamas for war crimes, exposing anti-Semitic indoctrination in UNRWA and the Palestinian Authority, such as its pay-to-slay program, which rewards those who murder Jews and pressuring governments, decision-makers, and financiers to freeze or put conditions on aid to the PA, UNRWA, and similar organizations. A key reminder that he emphasizes is that the Hamas attacks on October 7th were not just against Israel. It's against the Jewish people and also against, I think, the Western civilization. Uh, The jihadist, uh, the global jihad agenda is not just related to Jews and it's not just related to Israel. It's the Western civilization as a whole. Julie Stahl, CBN News, Jerusalem. Just set your mind on the idea of a pay-to-slay program for a while. This is why you and I, as followers of Jesus Christ, really and truly do look differently at the world around us. God gave us a wonderful set of glasses to look at life through the lens of Scripture. We know that the Bible talks about the nation of Israel will become his words, not mine, a cup of trembling to the nations. So seeing anti-Semitism, while repugnant though it may be, and while the clarion call post-Holocaust is never again, you and I understand that this is at its core a spiritual issue. Now, the Alphabet Soup Networks are never going to talk about that, but you and I understand it as such. And so how do we handle anti-Semitism? Yes, we use the voice that God has given us. Yes, we speak up and speak out against anti-Semitism, but we continue to pray because we know ultimately this is hatred coming from the prince of this world who thinks if he can annihilate the Jews And there are many who have worked in his plan, whether it's Herod or whether it was Pharaoh or whether it was Hitler, time after time after time, a global attempt to eradicate the Jews that somehow Satan must think if I can eradicate the Jews, there will no longer be a Jewish Messiah. Try, but fail he will. Here's a story coming out of the state of Florida, where the Supreme Court in that state is set to hear oral arguments dealing on the topic of abortion. Funded largely by Planned Parenthood and the American Civil Liberties Union, the $15 million campaign to enshrine abortion rights in the state constitution has amassed one and a half million signatures and support. In November, Attorney General Ashley Moody formally rejected it, calling the language misleading. 
Let's look at the amendment to limit government interference with abortion, which is sponsored by the committee Floridians Protecting Freedom. It reads, no law shall prohibit, penalize, delay, or restrict abortion before viability or when necessary to protect the patient's health as determined by the patient's health care provider. The medical community considers fetal viability to be 24 weeks, though abortion opponents say it's much earlier. Now a state Supreme Court, including five justices appointed by Republican Governor Ron DeSantis, will decide if the abortion measure goes to voters in November. The arguments will have the medical community for it. Our patients should get their medical advice from their doctors, not from politicians and judges. Pro-life groups against it. The Florida Constitution requires two things. A ballot initiative cannot be misleading and it cannot cover more than one subject. This one clearly fails both. Lawmakers we talked with weighed in. I'm personally pro-life, but at the same time, this is a very controversial issue. If 60% of the people plus one uh, decide that we should uh, outlaw it, then we got to listen to the people that elected us. Our neighbors did the work. They signed petitions. I signed mine. And we deserve to vote on this issue. Nothing else. Nothing else is acceptable. Well, the will of the people is the law of the land, but don't miss for one minute the machinations of the largest abortion provider in this country. So frustrated is Planned Parenthood when pro-life laws work their way through the state legislature, which is the voice of the people, that what they want to do now is circumnavigate and go right to the courts. Pray for the state of Florida. By the way, that isn't the only state where something like this is happening. This is the weapon du jour for the abortion community. Ah, what a reminder that greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. And ultimately, abortion is not a political issue. It's a biblical one. Back after this. God's work in your life has prepared you with a unique message to share and a problem to solve. That truth is why I've chosen Connecting the Dots as this month's truth tool. God uses you to point to His goodness and to give you meaning and purpose. Ask for your copy of Connecting the Dots when you give a gift of any amount to In the Market. Call 877-JANET-58, that's 877-JANET-58, or go to inthemarketwithjanetpartial.org. We're going to turn our sights toward Hollywood, the largest group of influencers in the world. And I am so grateful that God puts his people everywhere, even in Tinseltown. Yep. So God calls Karen Cavell and her husband to go to California and see it not as Sodom and Gomorrah, but as Nineveh, a town like every town in this nation, desperately in need of revival. But God also gave a special sense of discernment to Karen to recognize that these people are influencers. Don't believe me? Um, Why? Is a singer always shown in a box at a football game playing for a team that's going to play this Sunday at the Super Bowl? I digress. You know where I'm going with this. Influencers? I think so. And so Karen teaches us how to pray specifically for revival in Hollywood. Imagine, because revival starts in the heart, has a way of changing your worldview, has a way of impacting the messages you make through Hollywood. And believe me. That's all about messages. All you have to do is sit for 10 minutes at home and go through all the streaming platforms you've got. And you talk about the marketplace of ideas, they're right there in your remote control. But Karen does something to help us. A, she invites us to join her where God is already working. And that is through the ministry of the Hollywood Prayer Network. But she's also very pragmatic. And she teaches us how to do that by putting out a monthly call sheet. A call sheet 
If you understand how movies are made, there's a list that goes out to the people who have to show up that on set that day. If your name's on the call list, you get to sleep in. If your name is on the call list, you better show up because there's work to be done. Great idea. Because we need to show up and pray for there's work to be done. And this week's, this month's Hollywood Prayer Network is just filled with wonderful things to talk and pray about. Because after all, it is, ta-da, awards system, award season. And if you don't believe me, just go through your dial. It shows up just about every week now. Karen, thank you so very, very much for being with us. But I want to start with one of the things that was in your call sheet. Because I discovered this quite by accident. In full disclosure, Craig and I love Reacher. We just think it's great. But we stopped, and after the first episode, we went, there's a Chaucer-esque aspect to this. And by that, I mean <laughs> there's a morality tale to this because he, while his affect tends to be flat and measured, you almost always get an explanation as to why the bad guy dies. He does. It isn't just pell-mell. He's always going for a higher standard. There's always, it isn't just mayhem and blurred ambiguity when it comes to morality. It's the good guys and the bad guys. So I started doing a little research and I discovered his Insta-church. And then I sh- discovered that he shows up on a bunch of podcasts talking about health because he put on weight when he auditioned originally for Reacher. The character in the book is six foot five. He shows up at six three and he didn't have enough heft on. He went home, put on weight, comes back, gets the part again. So he talks a lot about health and fitness, but then he also combines it with his faith. This guy doesn't pull any punches, Karen. I mean, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. This guy's a committed believer. He is. Alan Richson is an amazing actor who, as a Christian, chose to do this part for the exact reasons you just said. He wants to show good and evil and the choices that we make. And our choices all have consequences. Mm. And I'm telling you, he has gotten nailed by Christians for this. And yet we are celebrating him because we believe Christians can't be afraid of culture. We can't be afraid of evil. We have to show that it takes a personal choice to know what to do right and how better to do it than on a television show 100 percent. and you know it was interesting because i remember he put out a piece where he was graciously dealing with the christians who were criticizing him for playing what they determined was a bad guy well i give you danzel washington who has played many a bad guy but danzel i understand will often take a script and he'll write scripture in the margins of the script And if the character reflects anyone that's already in scripture, he will make a reference to that in his preparation for the role because he really wants to draw from that as the resource of what is evil versus what is good. It doesn't make Denzel Washington a bad Christian if he decides to play a bad guy. It underscores that there is a duality to this world where good versus evil. I don't understand why people would criticize that. Because we all want Christians to act like milk toast instead of realizing <laughs> the the Bible is NC-17. Oh, my gosh, the things going on in there. And then we're afraid of things in real life. And so I, Denzel is a great example because he has three reasons he will take a part. Either it's because an evil character gets redeemed or the film deals with good versus evil and good wins, mm-hmm. or his character has a character arc where he learns and grows. Those are the three reasons he'll take a part. And it gets messy sometimes in these films because the world is messy and evil is nasty. And yet, if we have a clear understanding as Christians why we're doing what we're doing, we're going to have more eternal impact. Yes, absolutely. Well, I'm thankful, <clears throat> excuse me, thankful that you decided that you would 
make him a focus of our prayer because along the way, I understand that he started out on American Idol and didn't do so good. And then the doors just sort of opened up, opened after that. And now he's in major motion pictures. One of them, and this segues into something else, is going to be Ordinary Angels, where he has another role in that film, which is based on a true story. And I can't wait for that to come out because of the writer's strike. It was supposed to come out in the fall. Now it's going to come out sometime this spring. But that segues to something else that you talked about. Variety. Variety of all entities is hosting, you write, its first ever spirituality and faith in entertainment breakfast. Oh, sign me up. I would love I to be there. It's going to be there on the 13th. Talk to me about this gathering. Well, the Variety in the past has had a one-day spirituality and faith-based summit where they had different people who are in our industry but doing more faith-based projects come and talk about their projects and variety would cover it and i've been to many of those and it was really a breakthrough idea by a christian on the staff of variety about 10 years ago then they she left there was nothing for a while and now they decided you know what let's make it even more personal let's have a breakfast where we sit down with other people we really get to talk to the people at our table And so this is a breakthrough time. This is celebrating the people who are embraced and accepted in our cultural, um, secular, commercial industry, but also talking about their faith in God. So it's going to be very interesting. Yeah. Well, there are a couple of things I want to ask you about this, and you hear the music, so let me come back. Listen, friends, you would know about this if you signed up for the call sheet, which is part of the Hollywood Prayer Network. And I made it pretty easy for you. All you need to do is to go to hollywoodprayernetwork.org. If you didn't write it down because the kids are screaming, you're behind the wheel of the car. I get it. It's on my info page. So don't worry about it. Just go to in the market with janetpartial.org. Click on the red box. It says program details and audio. And you'll get this every month with very specific ways and people to pray for and about. It's a call sheet. You're called to show up and to pray. Back after this. Karen Cavell is with us. She is the founding director of the Hollywood Prayer Network. She's a wonderful author. By the way, she knows this business in and out. Uh, she has extensive experience, by the way, producing TV specials and documentaries and kids programming. So you have to have not just pathos, but you have to have ethos in that part of the world. And she's got it all, which is why I think God goes before her and opens so many doors. So let me just remind you again that Variety, and I want you to circle your calendar on this, on February 13th is going to have its first ever spirituality and faith and entertainment breakfast And so you're going to have several speakers there, Devon Patrick, Roma Downey, Hillary Swank, and Rain Wilson. And so let me just highlight Hillary for a minute, because we talked about Alan uh, Richson a little bit earlier, talking about this film that's going to come out called Ordinary Angels. She's in this as well. There's something that must be drawing her to these faith-based films. And that doesn't surprise me that she's showing up at this breakfast. Is there a way in which we can pray for her specifically? Oh, the the way to pray, you are so right, Janet. The way to pray is for her to fully embrace Jesus. She mm-hmm. is so hungry. She's so open. She is she is what we call very Christian friendly. And we just want her to feel the unconditional love of God so that she can fully embrace a personal relationship. But she's attracted to these roles. She's yes. she's She's attracted to the people she works with on these movies. It's really beautiful. So I am looking forward to um, hearing what she has to say at that breakfast and if she has gotten bolder or what her stance is right now. 
Excellent. And if I forget, please, please remind me to ask you about how the breakfast the next time we get together. But, you know, I I actually have to catch a plane and hurry tonight because I got to get to first press at Hollywood because I understand auditions are tonight for Twelfth Night. So I want to I want (laughs) to I am holding a role for you. Come on, Janet. (laughs) That's so cool. First of all, does first press do plays like this on a regular basis? And hello, they're doing the bard. Not not an exactly easy work to do, by the way. Yes. For Hollywood Press has had an, a Christian professional acting company for 27 years on wow. their campus. They have two 99-seat um, theaters, which is the allowable theater for the Actors um, Union in Actors' Equity in L.A. They have award-winning shows. They're known in our city for being an excellent theater company, and it's all made up of believers. It's really wow. exciting. Wow. How awesome is that? How many shows a year do they do? Um, well, they used to do four. Now they're doing two until they can get back up and going. COVID really killed the theater depart- the theater yeah. in L.A. And so they had a lot of restrictions, a lot of uh, guidelines. And so they're slowly building up and they're having two this year and planning hopefully to have four next year. So this is a perfect example of what I said before about ethos and pathos. So if if you, you know, it's like Field of Dreams. If you do it, they will come. So now you've got all of these people who are professing believers, but they're all actors doing a grade A program, a performance. And that's going to bring in all kinds of people into first press who might otherwise never darken the door of a church. I, I mean, yeah. talk about thinking strategically for the gospel. I just absolutely love that. Let me do one more thing, and that's to talk about your prayer for marriages. We talked about that before because um, marriage week is coming up. It's the 7th through the 14th, I think, which makes perfect Uh sense because Valentine's Day is in there. But I love the fact that you are asking us specifically to pray for marriages because you, the Hollywood Prayer Network, is actually going to be hosting a special night. So talk to me about that. Well, it's amazing. I have felt for decades, Jim and I have been really burdened with how many incredible Christians are not finding spouses, and they really want to be married. And L.A. is known as the city of orphans. It's a spiritual battle. And we finally got so frustrated, we said, you know what, we're going to hold a night. We're going to get the solid married couples we know to come into a big room with any single person who has the guts to say they want to be married, and let's pray for them. So we got 16 solid, amazing industry Christian couples to come pray. Mm. And we thought, oh, we get about 25, you know, people coming. We are, our RSVPs are going crazy. We're over a hundred people of single, and it's growing every day. I think we're up to 115 now or something. It keeps growing. Young people who are saying, you know what? I want to pray because I want to be married. And so we are just going right toward it and doing it um, just facing the the fiery darts of the enemy right away. Wow. Karen, you're so multiplistic, and I so appreciate that because it isn't just about being quiet and solemn and monastic and praying for Hollywood. You're you're there. And that fact, that takes me to something else that you do every year, which I just love, which is the Oscars are at the Dolby Theater, and you do a prayer walk. This is coming up on the 7th of March. Talk to me about this. Yes, the, the three days before the, na- the national airing of the Academy Awards in the Dolby Theater, we gather Christians in the industry to walk the red carpet, to pray the, over the land, to pray over where the press is going to be, where all of the celebrities come up and get dropped off. We pray for the security guards. And every year it's grown and grown. Last year we had 60 people show up to pray. Oh, and, wow. and this year it's going to be even bigger. I, I, I'm afraid we're going to get thrown out. So would you pray? that nobody throws us out when we're there. But it's so exciting to just 
put the whole place in God's hands and say, we are blessing it. We've gotten a chance to share our faith with security guards that are still setting up for, the, for that Sunday. We've talked to people who are blown away that people would bother to come and not just goggle at all the red carpet, but actually walk it and pray over it. So it's really fun. Well, I was going to say, you talk about something being uh, antithetical. One of these things is not like the other, to quote the old Sesame Street song. So you're there not to be the focus of attention, but to really pray over this. Uh, And we can do it, by the way. We can remember that on Thursday, March 7th at 7 o'clock at night, you'd know this, by the way, if you all got the prayer sheet or the call sheet, that at 7 o'clock, and that's going to be on West Coast time on the 7th, These people are going to show up and they're going to be praying for the Oscars. And we need to do that because guess what? They might get a golden statue, but a golden statue don't get you into heaven. They need Jesus. And when the lights go down and the contending starts all over again, and you may have won this year, but you may lose next year. And then then what? How do you define yourself? Who are you? Well, we defined ourselves in Jesus Christ. He's the only one that fills that hole in the human heart. Karen, that went by far too fast. Love your ministry. Love you. Love what you're doing. Thank you so much. And we'll be joining you in prayer on multiple issues. Back after this, friends. Christians are called to go into the marketplace of ideas. Throughout history, men and women of God have been thought leaders, innovators, and forces for good. We want this program to continue in that bold tradition. Join me by becoming a partial partner. Your monthly gift will make a difference as we help Christians take a bold stand in the marketplace of ideas. Call today, 877-JANET-58, or go online to inthemarketwithjanetpartial.org. Well, keeping in the vein of thinking critically and biblically, we're going to have another conversation with Wesley Smith. Boy, he does make us think, doesn't he? He's an author. He's a lawyer by training. He's a senior fellow at the Discovery Institute Center on Human Exceptionalism. And he's a writer par excellence. He writes books and he writes articles, many of which show up in National Review on a regular basis, but they show up in other places as well. And he have often said this, and I'm not trying to be simplistic, but in a world where good is called evil, evil is called good, and men are doing what is right in their own eyes, all of those phrases taken right out of Scripture, Wesley has this clear voice in the proclamation of truth and reminds us again about the preciousness of human exceptionalism, which is really at its core a biblical idea. In all of creation, we are the only ones made in his image. That alone makes us humanly exceptional. Plants weren't made in his image. God created them, but the only part of creation was man. And that's why human exceptionalism is such a profoundly important doctrine. And Wesley talks about it again and again and again. I have so many things I want to talk to you about, Wesley, but literally there's smoke coming off of my computer because you just filed a report with National Review, it seems to me, minutes ago. And I thought, okay, well, I know he's going to know to talk about this one because you just filed it. It has the headline, Self-Starvation to Qualify for Assisted Suicide. Ooh, where and why? Well, this is being promoted in bioethics literature, particularly Mm. by a particular bioethicist named Thaddeus Mason Pope who is uh, probably the most influential bioethicist in this issue in terms of promoting euthanasia, assisted suicide, and so forth. Uh, here's the idea behind this, and, it, and this idea has already been approved by, uh, I think it was the British Columbia Medical Association in Canada. Let's say you don't qualify for assisted suicide. Let's say in the United States, because you don't have less than six months to live. Well, if you want to get to the place where you can qualify for assisted suicide, the argument is starve yourself. Do not take liquids. 
It's called Voluntary Stop Eating and Drinking in Euthanasia Parlance. Hmm. And get to the place where you are weak, and then a doctor can prescribe for you. So so that basically, I mean, the illustration in this uh, study that Pope and another fellow wrote is uh, early stage dementia where you're not yet incompetent and you want to make sure you never get to that place, starve yourself, and then you'll get to the place where a doctor could prescribe for you because you're so weak. But it wouldn't have to be limited to uh, to dementia. Anybody with any illness, disability or so forth, if this were allowed, could do that. And it just shows you how the euthanasia movement are, are public policy promise breakers. Hmm. They they promise strict guidelines to protect against abuse. And as soon as the law is in place, these strict guidelines become obstacles. And they keep looking for ways around them. They keep loosening the laws. Uh, and this is another way in which um, uh, Pope and others are saying, hey, even if you don't qualify under state laws, we can make sure you can qualify by starving yourself, which it's, is a form of suicide. Wow. Yes, but he, he safeguards against abuse. Where's the paradox here? So in other <laughs> words, the way you can get assisted suicide is if you self-abuse dying by starvation or self-starvation. Why not hang yourself and have somebody stop the hanging in the middle of it and then give you a lethal injection? <laughs> I mean, it's, it's uh, ridiculous, I mean, but true. But the the people have to understand the strict guidelines against abuse is not meant. It is a con. These folks have no intention of limiting assisted suicide to terminal illnesses. Not at all. Once the United States gets to the place where most people have swallowed the hemlock, that limitation will disappear, as Mm -hmm. it has in Canada, as it has in Netherlands, as it has in Belgium, as is happening in Australia, as has happened in Germany, as has happened in Spain, as has happened in Portugal, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Wesley, you've been talking about this for years, as long as I've known you. And it's it's uh, if you were to ask me when we started this conversation that I would see it as prevalent as it is in the United States now, I would have told you not in a million years. So it raises a question from where you sit. Do you see any referenda on any ballots in November where states are going to tackle this issue again? Potentially, but I don't want to say where. Okay, good. I'll trust you, brother. If you don't want to, that's fine. Yeah, I I had a conversation with a red state uh, people, and uh, they're worried about it. Wow. So in other words, well, then that raises another question, which is, and you and, and I it don't... might not be this year, but soon, because, you know, we're getting along in the in the calendar, but... Exactly. Yeah, but the this, point is, the idea yeah. has legs and it's walking around, which raises my question, yeah. which is, what about the people who see the glasses half empty? Well, that horse has left the barn. I mean, it's taking, <laughs> it's taking over in the, in the states in this country, and pretty soon it's going to be another twisted ethic that we embrace. Do you see that happening? Yes. Mm. Wow. Uh, let me say, show what happened in Germany. The whole end game. Well, let me step back for a second. When I wrote my first piece against euthanasia, I was not involved in the issue at all. I had a friend kill herself under the influence of the Hemlock Society. Mm. I wrote a piece in Newsweek magazine called The Whispers of Strangers. And it's available if people want to find it on the internet, very readily available. It came out in June 1993. That's when I started this. And I, I kind of logically sorted through um, where this would lead. And one of the things that I predicted was that it would lead to organ harvesting, and I called it as a plum to society, meaning giving society a stake in people committing assisted suicide or being euthanized. 
I was caught, but I, I, I became, became part of this issue because I got so much hate mail. And mm. that was when, in order to send somebody hate mail, you had to get something called a piece of paper <laughs> and you had to write on this piece of paper and then you had to put it in an envelope and you actually had to pay to tell somebody you hope they died painfully of cancer by buying a stamp right. and, and mailing it. That's before the, uh, the email. Well, I got so many hate mail from that. Um, I thought, what happened to my culture and where was I when it happened, which is why I moved my trajectory to these issues. But even the people who said, you're right, told me, don't worry, they'll never be organ harvesting. Mm. It happened, as we've talked, it's happening in Canada. It's happening in the Netherlands. It's happening in Belgium. In Canada, if you qualify for euthanasia, if you're in Ontario or Quebec, the doctor will contact the organ uh, donation organization, and they will in turn contact the patient who's about to be killed, asking for their livers. And guess what? These patients do not get referred to suicide prevention, but they do get referred to organ donation. Hmm. So I was right. In fact, I waited to see if you were going to say something else. You wrote about this at the end of January with the headline that said, Organ Harvesting Requested from Those to be Killed by Euthanasia in Quebec. Yes. First thing that comes to my mind is the question of coercion. If you're already in a state where you're requesting euthanasia, you're compromised emotionally, mentally, physically, and spiritually. That's the point where you say, sure, you can take my organs. And then, of course, your best interests are going to be at heart, right? Front and center. If somebody is already going to pluck your organs the minute you die. I mean, talk about supply side economics. And it can become the tipping point. You could say, oh, you know, my life is really difficult, but my death would have greater value than my life. It can become the excuse for doing it. And uh, there's a there's a bioethics journal. uh, It came out in Canada where. Uh, it was argued that rather than waiting, as in many of the provinces in Canada, for the patient to bring it up, doctors should bring it up. So just imagine, can I have euthanasia, doc? Yes, you can. And by the way, can we have your liver? Hmm. You know, talk about a tipping point. Even if you were a borderline case, can't you see somebody making a stronger case for your euthanized, your being euthanized if they knew that they were going to get an organ out of it? Yeah, I I can. And there's also argument, uh, and I've written about this in National Review, uh, the Canadian Medical Association Journal put out a piece that said for guidelines for organ harvesting, that uh, if somebody wanted to give an organ to somebody they knew, that that should be allowed. So imagine, and in Canada, remember, you don't have to be terminally ill. You can be disabled, you can be elderly, you can be um, chronically ill or whatever it might be. And uh, at, at some point in the future, mentally ill. The only good news recently is that Canada has once again delayed the mental illness qualification, uh, apparently because they don't have enough psychiatrists to do it. Hmm. Uh, <laughs> the um, But the, the, the criteria is um, if you, let's say you have a daughter who's sick, and and you test your cells and you find out that you're organ compatible, you know, in terms of the blood test and so forth. Well, that and you have, uh, let's just say, um, uh, multiple sclerosis. That could become the reason to be killed, to save your daughter. Yeah, they don't mitigate the argument, they enhance it. And so these are yes, all these exactly. little coercive arguments that... Uh, ju- oh, it's just amazing to me. I'm, and I, by the way, I had read that they had put this mental illness standard on hold for a while in Canada. 
And yeah. for that, I'm very, very grateful. But again, this this is why this is such a multi-layered issue, because this says something about the state of mortals, that we would we would do this and we would do it simply through the manipulation of language. Mercy killing. Remember that? I mean, we use all of this language that somehow that says that allowing yourself to be killed so that you won't be a burden on your family, so that you can mitigate right. pain because I'm depressed, because I just don't want to do it anymore. And to have the government come alongside and be complicit in that, the whole idea of the best interests of someone, the idea that government protects, it doesn't enhance evil, that it in fact guards against it, it's just thrown completely out of the window. Wow. When we come back, I want to talk to you about an article you wrote about pregnancy and whether or not it should be looked at as the equivalent of catching the measles. Yes, Wesley Smith did in fact write that. In fact, he writes a lot of stuff, a lot of really great thought-provoking stuff, and you need to follow him. So I've got a link to his website. By the way, did I tell you he's got an absolutely fabulous podcast? It's called Humanize. I've got a link to the Discovery Institute and its Center for Human Exceptionalism. Humanize is what it is called. I've got a link, by the way, to one of the recent ones he did about the World Health Organization and gender-affirming care. Oh, you're going to want to hear that. It's all on the info page back after this. We're talking with Wesley Smith, who's the chair and senior fellow at the Discovery Institute Center on Human Exceptionalism. He's also a contributor to National Review and the author of multiple, multiple books, as well as the host of a tremendous podcast called Humanize. And I've got a link to one of his recent broadcasts that you are going to want to uh, listen to. But I want to go back to an article that you wrote earlier this month on this question of pregnancy, a bioethics journal. And again, you and I've talked about academia. You know, ideas have consequences. They may be just relegated to the halls of academia right now, but these ideas get legs and they walk around after a while. And so this article literally posited, posited the idea that pregnancy is the equivalent to catching measles. Well, I'm here to tell you, as somebody went through this four times, that ain't true. I'm telling you that right now. So why are they pushing this and why would they minimize pregnancy and put it in the same category as a contagious disease? Well, there's an anti-natalist uh, movement in the air, isn't there? Mm. Uh, anti-human. Uh, and it's certainly uh, misogynistic, it seems to me. Um, the idea is... Uh, Part of it would be to, it would affect abortion policy, because if pregnancy was an illness, which is the theme of this piece, which, by the way, was written in the Journal of Medical Ethics, which is one of the most preeminent bioethics journals in the world. So it's not some, you know, crackpot uh, off on the Internet with 25 right. followers that I found. Mm -hmm. It's it's mainstream as it can be. Um, if If pregnancy is a disease, then abortion and anything else that can prevent pregnancy or end pregnancy is a treatment. So it would turn everything on its head. And uh, let me read for your audience what these people said. And again, this is in one of the most preeminent uh, bioethics journals in the world. We can compare pregnancy with measles. Measles is uncontroversially regarded as a disease and treated as such by public health authorities and health professionals. Measles is harmful to nearly all of those who catch it. However, most patients will survive, very few will die, and only a few proportions will go on to experience longer-term impacts on their health. So how do the risks of pregnancy compare with those of measles? Like measles, pregnancy is a self-limiting condition. It follows a predictable trajectory. It goes on and on. You get tiredness, you know, sleep problems, uh, vaginal discharge, and this kind of thing. 
Um, so what they're actually saying is that the developing child is the equivalent of a pathogen. Wow. And it's, it's very, very destructive. And the other part, in addition to the abortion question, is the antinatalism, the, that the, there is a, uh, in fact, I, about two weeks before this came out, or maybe a week, you know, human, human extinction. There are people pushing for human extinction. No That's more right. children. Mm-hmm. And and people might say, oh, who cares? As you mentioned, um, what some you know egghead in a, in a uh, major academic publication says. Who cares? Well, I would point out that ten years ago I started warning that these bioethicists were saying that children with gender dysphoria should be getting puberty blocking and mastectomies. And at that time, people said to me, oh, who cares what these people in the, you know, academic and the ivory tower think that'll never happen. Well, look what's happened in public health, particularly in these controversial issues. This is how public policy is made. It starts at the very high end of the intellectual uh, universe, we'll say, among the bioethics journals, medical journals and so forth. There's a discourse that goes on and eventually a rough consensus Come, comes into place, and then it is imposed down on government, on in the courts, and so forth. Did you ever wonder how suddenly puberty blockers became a thing and gender dysphoria in children yes. became a thing? Mm-hmm. My gosh, it happened. It just happened overnight. No, it didn't. <laughs> it took years of of preparation and uh, planning and argumentation in the bioethics journals and medical journals, which I have been. Uh, I read them so you don't have to. Um, <laughs> I have uh, been documenting. And if you want to find out what's going to go wrong next in this world, read the science journals, the medical journals, and the bioethics journals. Not every article, obviously, is of that ilk, but many are, and you can see the trajectory. Such an astute observation. Why I appreciate you so much as a friend and as a writer. I have to tell you, Wesley, just keen insight. So let me pick up on two salient points that you brought out. Number one, if we categorize pregnancy as a disease, which it is not, and then you open the Pandora's box of treating it like a disease, what's the purpose of a disease? You get rid of what's making you sick, and that opens the floodgates for abortion. So it's untenable to categorize this. Uh, in the same category. Uh, the other thing, too, is it really goes to the Bill Gates and the Joan Goodall, uh, Jane Goodall ideas out there that people are the problem. And if we could just trim down the population, wouldn't it be better? So in this ethics article, by the way, uh, it says the second stage labor will usually involve extreme pain, powerful cramps and the ripping and stretching of damaging tissue. The second stage is far riskier than the first in terms of long term threats to life and death. Excuse me. I believe women have been doing this for millennia, and it's not stopped anybody from having a baby if they want one? Right. And, and of course, back in the battle days, women did die a lot more uh, in childbirth than they do now. But usually that was because of infection, which is a disease. Exactly. But the pregnancy doesn't cause the disease. No, that's so, not. No, of course not. Wow. I mean, of course, sometimes there are uh, pregnancies that, that go wrong, and that can be a... Um, you know, a, a, I wouldn't call it a disease, but certainly a pathology. But a normal pregnancy is not a pathology and it's not a disease. In fact, uh, it's quite the opposite of that. Infertility, by the way, is treated as a disease. <laughs> so, and, and we've talked on your show before how we're now, because infertility, even among same-sex couples, is now considered a disease. Uh, reproductive technologies have to be covered on health insurance. So which is it? 
So let me, time's gone too quickly, and there's so many other articles I wanted to talk to you about, but going to the idea of this mission creep, which is really what we see, starts in academia, starts in the journals, but it ends up landing right square in the public square. Um, Is this idea of trying to create this pregnancy as the equivalent of a contagion, given the ridiculous mythology that's uttered ad nauseum about climate scaring that's going on, it seems to me that this would, this idea is an opportunistic infection, that it would get legs quickly because it would speak into the abortion community and it would speak into the climate alarmist community as well. This one, I think we have to watch very carefully. Is there an antidote to stop this crazy thinking? I mean, everybody, well, I'm an all-comers policy person. Go to the public square, share your idea, but you defeat a bad idea with a better one. How do we defeat this idea? And I got 10 seconds. Human exceptionalism. There you go. You're you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. Being pregnant is a blessing. It is not a curse. Thank you, Wesley. Brilliant work. And again, how fortuitous that you had a brand new piece coming off the presses just today before we went on air so that we could talk about this. But there's a whole lot more where that came from. So you need to go and you need to follow Wesley. Start with his podcast, Humanize. I've got a link to the human exceptionalism dot center for the uh, scene for the center for human exceptionalism. That's a good place to start and then track them on national review as well. Thank you, Wesley. Thanks friends. See you next time.